You're listening to Youth Ministry Maverick, a podcast about mold-breaking methods to invest in the next generation of the church. Here's your host, Jeff Harding. Hello, hello, everyone. This is Jeff. Welcome back to Youth Ministry Maverick. You're listening to episode 30, Why Interfaith Dialogue is Vital. So there's usually just one thing in mind when we talk to our students about their peers who belong to other faiths and other religions, and that's conversion, straight-up evangelism. Now, I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm saying that uh, I think that is a general desire that we have for those that we interact with who are not yet in Christ, and I think that's good. However, do we consider what it would look like to have more than just an initial gospel presentation? Do we consider what it would look like to have a relationship? Furthermore, how can caring for someone beyond giving an initial gospel presentation give students affirmation of their faith while also creating more opportunities to share that faith? Well, today we're going to talk about that with Keith Heilman. Uh, Keith is my guest today. He was the pastor here at the church I serve at for several years. He recently took a different job up north, and he helped create uh, an, a model, an organization uh, called Friends for Good, which is an interfaith dialogue uh, model, and uh, it's been talked about at Harvard. Um, it's still going today. It includes four congregations of different faiths, and we're going to talk about that and see why we in youth ministry should broaden our context of evangelism. So, let's go ahead and hop into that conversation with Keith. Keith, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast with me today. Uh, If you could, give us all a little intro of who you are and what you're up to these days. Uh, Thanks, Jeff. I'm really Really grateful for the opportunity uh, to connect with you again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I am um, husband to Beth and father to four kids, Emma, uh, Isaac, Luke, and Trey. Uh, our only daughter, Emma, is going to be launched here uh, with her wedding at the end of the year. So it's been a strange strange year to do much of anything including plan a wedding and her college graduation but in addition to all that of course you know we moved from texas where we've been for 25 years in uh, ministry at trinity fellowship church to um um, west of cleveland in a great little lakeside village called bay village where i'm uh, one of the pastors at bay presbyterian church and so i have a focus on discipleship and pastoral care and uh, more more than enough opportunity right now trying to get situated in the world of relationships in a COVID context. It's been quite challenging, and uh, but I like new and challenging, and so I'm, I'm enjoying what God's laying before us here. Yeah, very cool, man. Yeah, definitely a lot going on with COVID, and heck of a time to move and change jobs. Those are right up there on big milestone and stress points. So yep. not to mention planning a wedding. So yeah, man, uh, thank you for making the time for this. I appreciate it. Um, So as I mentioned in the intro, we'll be talking about a model of engagement for people of different faiths to have open, healthy, ongoing dialogue with one another. Uh, As those who believe that everyone is made in the image of God and that we should love our neighbor, 
which is also everyone, uh, Christians should champion this sort of engagement with others. And our students know and interact with peers of various faith traditions all the time, but doing so in a manner that's not overbearing or one-track-minded certainly comes with caveats and sometimes delicate boundaries. So, Keith, can you tell us about the origin story of this interfaith group that was labeled Friends for Good? Yeah, I'd love to, but you know, part of me wants me to ask if you can tell it, because that'd be the real test as to whether or not it took root in our church together, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> if, if others can own it. Yeah, Yeah. no, I mean, I uh, definitely being on staff, I probably knew before most other people some of the inside details with you uh, grabbing coffee at McDonald's uh, with the imam up at the mosque here up, up here yeah. and him uh, already being linked with the Unitarian Church and them talking to you about joining together and you saying, well, that's good to do service projects and things like that, but I want to have more than that. I want to have dialogue. And yeah. that's kind of where it started. And so we you know, uh, chose about 30 people or so from each congregation and started having meals, uh, table leaders, you have people to commit to come to all three. Um, and uh, then eventually, uh, probably two years ago or so, right, is when we added uh, the Temple Shalom. And so uh, yeah. now it's four. And uh, yeah, it's been going for at least four or five years now, right? This, so this is the the fifth year, fifth the year. weird, the weirdest, obviously, because <laughs> yeah. of the pandemic. But yeah, and I think it was year three, we added uh, a rabbi to complete the joke, you know, <laughs> a, a minister um, and a mom and a rabbi, you know, sat yeah. down together for dinner. But there you go. Yeah. So yeah. Th- there were a couple of key influences in my thinking uh, to help pave the way for what became Friends for Good. The, f- the first was uh, just an um, a holy unrest in my soul, even um, about what it means to love your neighbor, particularly those of a very different background. And I, I don't want to just say interfaith was new to me, although it was. It was never anything that was really strongly encouraged or certainly talked about as a model for ministry at Dallas Seminary, where we studied, right? Um, I, that may be changing a little bit just because, you know, the surprising thing about go and make disciples of all the nations, if you don't go, God will bring them to you and you still have the opportunity to get to know your neighbors. And so for me, one of the personal kind of caveats that got me started in this thinking was I was spending a lot of time in Africa training pastors. And one of the sem- seminars that got to help teach uh, a group of pastors over a week in Tanzania was how to love your Muslim neighbor in a, in a in a place of the world where Islam is quite aggressive uh, with church leaders and, and getting these folks to have a mindset change that, wait a second, they're my neighbors. I get to love them, even though they might even be enemies. And Jesus said, we got to love them too. Uh, and, and even fo- some of these pastors that were former Muslims, it's like, that was a huge mindset change. Yeah. They're thinking, well, I just got to separate myself from evil, right? Or difference of thinking. But no, we're called by Christ to love. And all I'd say, it was a transforming week for me, studying, preparing, seeing these guys grasp that concept of grace. And then I come home and realize that where our church is, you know, less than a half a mile from one of the largest mosques in North Texas. And where I lived, another half mile on the other side of the mosque, I passed the mosque multiple times a day and knew no one in the mosque, had no relationships with my neighbors. And it was one of those very clear 
moments that is repeated in ministry when you just say, oh, what a hypocrite I am, you know? <laughs> and yeah. I was like, well, th- if the Lord prepared me to teach this stuff halfway around the world, why can't I prayerfully be open to employing it in my neighborhood? And so I started praying for an opportunity to get to know the leaders at the mosque. And that eventually started to happen, but it took long, I think, seasons of preparation for our church. Part of that was just our missions department with a focus on um, Muslims and praying for our Muslim neighbors through Ramadan. And, mm-hmm. and one of the leaders of Chris Starr is a member of our church. He's a big coach and encourager. And, and pitching the idea that if we were being hospitable to our neighbors, praying for them through Ramadan and planned a meal and say, come tell us how God spoke to you as we were praying for you, they would be in Middle Eastern hospitality mindset. Uh, willing to ask the same questions of you. And so as the Lord allowed me to meet the local imam, who was my age or a little bit younger, and we started building a friendship, which took a long, long time for trust to be developed. That's huge. That is That cannot be understated as a key to this whole process. Eventually, I pitched the idea, we want to host this meal. And he said, hey, I got this friend who's been asking the same thing. How about you meet with him and I for lunch and talk about it. And that's the second piece that was, I think, a divine influence on developing Friends for Good. Because this this other minister, who's a Unitarian minister, was someone who, um, in a monumental pastoral event at Trinity, there was a very tragic loss in our body. Uh, and we, we had a memorial service for a son uh, whose family was still involved in the church. Um, And it was in partnership with this Unitarian church. So I had co-labored in a very intimate pastoral act with this Unitarian minister. So we already had a friendship in in a way. And so now we sit down at lunch and this Unitarian minister is like, look, we need our people are think they're more sophisticated than they are when it comes to being open to their ideas and having them checked and visit with people who are unlike them. Because I went into it thinking, I'm not interested in Unitarians at this party. I'm just interested in loving our Muslim neighbors. We are asking our elder board to pray for this opportunity. Uh, and, but just, God, make it clear if we're going to talk to the Unitarians or not, because this feels like it's going to water things down. And the last thing in the world we really need is lowest common denominator interfaith thinking. Yeah, uh, What I'd been learning in the interfaith work that I was doing locally, Jeff, was... Um, not a lot of evangelicals get involved. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that, um, that I'm starting to understand, but oftentimes they just get frustrated with, Hey, look, we all believe the same things. And I looked at it as like, no, we don't. And if anything, I want to be at the table long enough to win enough friendships so that when people spout that off, I could be very quick, but generous and kind to say, you know, we don't, but where we differ is the place of most interesting conversation if you're willing to go there. And so when, when the Unitarian minister kind of hit the same note, I was like, okay, we could do this. The three of us could work this out together. And that was the beginning of what became Friends for Good. It started with friendships among clergy who were willing to talk about their faith differences openly and take a mindset now that a lot of interfaith work is the clergy come to an event, the clergy presents, the people in attendance go, hmm, wow, that was really interesting. Thank you, clergy, and leave. What we were aiming for was, how can the clergy model something 
but give enough equipping and space so that the laity learn to do this. Because if the laity could learn to do it, now all of a sudden you can transform not just the dinner conversation, but the workplace conversation, right? The community yeah. place conversation. And so that became some of the core values that guided the development of what's now been running for five years called Friends for Good, where we have four congregations committed to a set number of meals with a pretty developed curriculum and that same sense of the clergy model, but we equip the congregants to learn how to have open dialogues about faith differences with people who believe and live very differently than one another. Yeah. Man, that uh, and when people hear that for the first time, you know, hopefully they see, okay, yeah, all right, I see that's very simple and laid out and it makes sense. And yet, you know, when you when you mentioned, I understand, you know, some of those reasons why evangelicals specifically don't get involved with interfaith groups, you know, it's because we're like, okay, are we letting ourselves be influenced by worldly or demonic, even some of them might talk about it, you know, uh, how, how should we engage with people if it's not in the context of evangelism, uh, you know, and, and while, while youth workers teach their students about engaging with people of different religions, it's practically always within the context of evangelism. And I think the heart of that is good and certainly necessary. However, I think we might be focusing a little too much on the four spiritual laws, gospel track type of evangelism at times, and not as much on the witness by loving words and actions approach. Um, I think both are necessary in an increasingly post-truth and post-Christian world. Uh, I understand the focus on the directing toward salvation Christ angle as being concerned about someone's place in eternity is the primary reason behind the Great Commission. I totally get that. But in a polarized culture of for me or against me, um, establishing trust within a relationship has an advantage over a cut and dry question about trusting Jesus at the forefront. Um, So Keith, can you talk about the nuance that was needed and is needed uh, to be established between all the different congregations in the Friends for Good group and perhaps specifically on the Christians who struggled to see the point of doing this if it wasn't explicitly for gospel presenting evangelism? Yes, yes, I'd love to. Uh, Although there's so much in that question, Jeff, I mean, it's really, really thoughtful and packed in because to some extent, I can answer this through the lens of, well, what is evangelism after all? You know, when mm-hmm. the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, you know, share my faith and life with you. I mean, there, there's a sense of our lives are a witness in addition to the words or the arguments or the presentations about Jesus we make. Um, and the idea of like having enough uh, trust built through a generous love towards one's neighbor so that they'd want to hear you is a whole nother dynamic to that. Not to mention, um, you know, have you thought through what are the potential obstacles for people of different cultures to actually win that opportunity to converse? And yeah. so that was a big challenge, right? And, and, and a big part of that was, one, evangelicals aren't typically in that space. Um, and that was cl- tr- um, clearly the case and presupposition of, of the other clergy. It's like, wow, you're... How, how are you doing this? I mean, how are you getting away with this in an evangelical church? You know, and all, all the stereotypes were there. And so 
um, one of the things we had to do early on and often with the clergy is give ourselves the freedom in building our relationship to talk about all the stereotypes. Because if it, it's living within us as clergy, and we can't show winsomely how much we care for one another through the stereotypes, there's no hope we're going to get through the stereotypes at the folks on the table where the stereotypes become themselves the barriers and the fear, right? You just now live under caricatures of fear. Right. Um, and so I, I think internally in what I was observing culturally, maybe in my holy unrest just within the evangelicalism at times, is I was wanting to try and bust the paradigm for what the stereotype of an evangelical is. And some of this was even just at our specific church. It's like, I, we have great theology, but I feel at times we're mo more content to say we're right. You know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if I offend people or rather, whether they hear the gospel or see it in me. At the end of the day, I'm just comfortable in being right. I'm right, dang it. And, and with that, that also is portrayed uh, in a stereotype that others clearly pick up on is that as evangelicals, we care more about the conversion than the person, mm -hmm. right? We're, we're in it for the transaction. You know, we're not there to listen. <laughs> we're, we're there to listen only if you'll follow the agenda that I've laid out that'll lead in conversion. Now I'm not saying conversion isn't important. Obviously it is. And, and if we have a life-changing message, we should be ready, eager to share it with others. But you have a problem when your audience thinks that you don't care about them as people. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so we had to, you have to, you have to be aware and willing to own that about yourself that most evangelicals have never been to a mosque. And most folks who attend mosques have never been invited into an evangelical home. And when we got to know the Unitarians in it, there was a majority of the Unitarians that were former evangelicals and they had all sorts of bias. And so they just think, oh, we're all, you know, Republican leaning, you know, gun toting, certain political stripe stuff It's like, well, well, no, we're different than that. We just need to once be able to sit down and create a context where we can listen to one another and get to plow through those stereotypes. So you, you, there needs to be a security or a confidence of who you are as a person, more importantly, with an identity in Jesus that you can go into a space of conversation where you know you're going to be misunderstood. And from my standpoint, you're misunderstood at two levels, one by the outsiders who ironically towards the end of the day, I would feel like they were more curious to learn if we were willing to share our lives. And you're also misunderstood by the insiders who were like, wait a second, this is supposed to be about evangelism, not just softy kind of relationships with people. It's like, well, actually, if we're to share our faith and our lives, um, if, I can, if I can win trust around a most intimate context, like a meal, right? A meal is universally, historically, one of the most intimate spaces for relationship building and fellowship, right? You belong symbolically seen by you are invited to my table and vice versa. Now, now, all of a sudden, over a period of time of learning to tell the story of my life and listen to the story of your life, if, if you can guide folks to say, hey, what do you believe about God? All of a sudden, that curiosity translates and says, oh, will you tell me what you believe about God? By, by the, the end of the first year and into the second, we had testimonies of folks in our church that were like, uh, I was afraid this would be soft on evangelism. And, but it's very different than I thought. But what's true 
is I sit at a table now where people are asking me, tell me what you believe about this thing. And they really want to know, which is so very different than suffering a Kennedy question oriented leading presentation anyway. Right. It's just the other theme that I would kind of equip our church regularly to consider because folks would say, well, I don't know if I feel equipped. I don't know if I know my faith well enough to be able to, to, to do or say the right things, particularly to folks who believe so differently. Well, first of all, start with listening rather than speaking, right? Uh, first of all, if you get to know the other person, you get to know where they're coming from. That's huge. The second thing is Jesus promised his disciples, look, I will give you the words to say. So at that point, it becomes first and foremost or primarily an action of discipleship. Will I trust Jesus's provision? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and let, yeah. let the whole concept of evangelism be the Spirit's work, which is his anyway, right? I just want to trust him to give me the words to say that if I would open my life up before these other people who believe differently, I might win an opportunity to tell the story how God is changing me. And when God would be pleased to allow my story to be shared, now all of a sudden <laughs> um, I might see faith be transformed, including my own, right? Now, that is powerful when you get that taking place. Uh, the other thing we used to tell folks is, well, I, I just don't know if I know, know clearly what I believe and how to share it. It's like, well, if you trust Jesus to provide the words for you, trust me, if, if he's real to you, right? And, and you've got seeds of faith at work. When you listen to the other solutions to life that the other faiths represent, Come back and tell me if you aren't all the more excited about how Jesus delivers versus those other faiths. And I mean, it's just like universal. All, of, all the, the Christians say it's like, wow, I have much more confidence in the faith that Jesus has given me than any of the other answers that are out there. And so it ultimately we back away and think, you know, folks on the outside might think, oh, no, these guys are dabbling in you know, places where it's dangerous. It's like, oh, the whole world's dangerous. I mean, if evil is, you know, supernaturally personified, it's also in systems and it's in me, right? The whole world is dangerous. Um, But the issue is whether or not I'm trusting Jesus in that and allowing myself to be open enough that he would use my life and story. Um, And at the end of the day, it's just so fun to hear stories from the other churches. Like, wow, we've, we've heard lots of evangelicals talk about sin, and how they're just God's disappointed with our lives and behaviors, but we've we've never really had the opportunity to hear Christians talk about why grace matters to them. It's like, wh- isn't that the point of sharing the gospel? Yeah, <laughs> you just got to win the context for it. That's right. No, man, I love that, and um, you know, I hope uh, people listening, whether you work with youth or not, um, are just thinking about, you know, one, um, if this has us as believers being more affirmed in our faith by just having these conversations, you know, how are we loving our neighbors or loving our enemies? You know, uh, we've been talking about peacemaking um, a lot lately. And and with the students, we went through some role play stuff uh, this last Sunday and trying to figure out, okay, how do you resolve conflict? But then also, how do you have hard conversations? And if love your enemies and love everyone is just kind of like, well, you know, I don't agree with them and I actually can't stand them, but I'll just, you know, in some weird passive spiritual way, I guess I'll just love them. And is that truly loving or is it, hey, if we have the opportunity to engage them, 
Um, can we engage them? Right. Look at who Jesus interacted right. with. Um, he actually interacted with people who were like, how can you even be in the same space as this person? You know, they are so right. unclean. They are so not right. worthy. Um, and he made points t- to do that. Um, and so for us to just say, well, you know, I'll leave it to the quote unquote professional Christians, all the church pastors and everything else, or, you know, people who are missionaries, but, you know, I'll smile and wave and, and be nice, but I don't think I need to be in relationship or really engage with these people because they're just wrong, you know, kind of going back to the, yes. it's more important to be right. Yeah. And, um, I think that is very much a theme that plays into our current polarized right. culture anyway, um, is, you know, yeah, people, they're just, you can take them or leave them, but it's more important to be right. And if anyone disagrees with you on even one little subtle thing, unless they listen to my initial uh, response of reason, then, you know, cast them out and we don't need them. Uh, and yeah, right. it's very fractured. And so in a culture that's already fractured politically, certainly, but even socially um, for us as the bride of Christ as the example, as the picture of Christ in the world to be able to say, you know, I've been telling our students and lots of people for the last several months, this is where the church should be stepping up in a pandemic and everything else. And we see the limits of government see the limits of people who, Oh, well, I don't agree with you. So I don't want anything to do with you. The church should be leading the way on all of this on helping people financially or with food or mentally or, emotionally, spiritually, certainly, but even physically, like actually being able to share a meal, kind of like you said, or be able just to have a conversation that's more than just about the weather or sports, you know, like actually getting to hear someone's story. When you hear someone's story, you know, kind of like uh, you and I got a really cool chance to meet uh, with Alistair McGrath, and he had a book that was recently coming out at that point on apologetics in the narrative sense. And I asked him, I got to ask him, Hey, why are you doing it from the narrative sense? And he talked about how, when you share your story, it lets people know that your story can be part of their story. And they have more things to share than just empirical facts about their birth and where they went to school, like what their experience is it matters. It's true. And so when they share that, they're sharing kind of who they are and you get a glimpse really into their soul. You get a glimpse of like, this is who from a Christian perspective, certainly who God made you to be and why he made you. And you can see little hints of, yeah, that's because you're made in God's image, right? Maybe you don't even realize it, but you are. And if we realize and see that, how can we say, yeah, but you don't agree with me. So whatever, you know, that's an intimate (laughs) connection. Even just having a platonic relationship conversation can be an intimate sense spiritually, right? Yeah, there, boy, there's so much in that, Jeff. You, I, you nailed a lot of necessary components for ministry in the 21st century to really kind of own and and focus on. I when I when I've told people about friends for good in that regard, um, I, you know, in part, I'm trying to convince Christians why they should consider something like this. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean, you can do this biblically, obviously. I mean. Jeremiah 29, I mean, um, you know, God takes his people and he puts them in Babylon and they're like, oh no, we need to, you know, huddle up here and create a little bubble and protect ourselves, uh, uh, right? Because we need to remain pure. Well, the irony is he put them in exile because they weren't pure. And what he encouraged them to do is look at your neighbor, root for him, right? 
they love nice parks and good meals, just like you do. And so immediately you've got an ability to kind of be on the same page with them. Not sacrificing your faith, right? Not worshiping other gods. That's what got you in there, a problem in the first place. But rather you can root for what is good. Um, and, and I think Christians can do this unbelievably well because of remarkable gospel truths. That is, when Christians get together and they root for good in the community, they also have the ability to show a remarkable hospitality. Right, um, yeah. John 13, 34, 35, right? All men will know that you're my disciples because of the love you have for one another. I, this is one of the arguments I would use uh, with evangelical leaders who are afraid of interfaith work. They're like, well, you know, that's just distracting. They just care about social good and they're not caring about the gospel. We care about the gospel. It's like, you're right. They do care about social good. And so do I. Now imagine if you and I, who not just care about social good, but also the gospel, show up and care about the same things with them and they see the remarkable kind of love we have for one another, all of a sudden they see hospitality that proves Jesus existed. And what's true in Friends for Good that we saw in this was that usually by, by year two and three, um, Trinity Fellowship Church hosted the first dinner. And here's the reason. <laughs> People concluded quickly, man, you guys do hospitality well. And they're like, how do you do that? And I'm thinking, well, let me tell you what Jesus says about it. And they're like, all right, whatever. You just host a good meal. So please host it. It's like, great. Christians need to be loving their neighbors well together. Because mm -hmm. Jesus promised to make himself known. But there's a, a second thing that when Christians get together, it's, it becomes remarkably powerful. And that is we can elevate grace with truth. Or almost it gets to the point where we need to elevate grace before truth. And, and this is to your setup, Jeff. Uh, we can be so concerned about just getting things right. And oftentimes that means just getting our behavior right. Because we want life to work out for us comfortably or our kids or whatever. And, and we become more concerned about how we're acting. And we'll even times disguise it under, oh, we are believing the right things. But the real evidence that the gospel's at work in your thinking and behavior is that you become more and more and more gracious towards others. Very mm -hmm. simply put, you gotta have grace and truth together because Jesus holds them together. But when Jesus is leading with truth to correct people, Nearly every time he does that, he's correcting Pharisees who are concerned only about their externals. <laughs> when right. he's leading with everyone else, he's leading with grace. And I think this is an, another huge opportunity the church has to put, put the message of the gospel graciously before their neighbor. Not sacrificing truth, but you got to lead with grace. And to do that together, again, becomes winsome and very different in the world. But the third characteristic that we we kind of really push with friends for good that the church can uniquely do well because of the gospel is that we can lead with vulnerability and humility. And this is to your point about the storytelling. When you can open up your life as a story of God's grace and you can invite others into it before they ever feel comfortable inviting you into it, right? You are living like Jesus who, although he, um, did not grasp eternity or the form of God, right? He laid it down willingly, became the most humble form of a servant, becoming obedient unto death, even death on a cross, right? So that he could invite others in. When, when we can lead with that kind of vulnerability and people feel safe, oh, you're not just judging me. Then you can talk about what is it that's really motivating your life? What are you really hoping in that'll never deliver? 
but you, you have to have the ability and confidence and security in Christ to lead with that vulnerability. Honestly, others without Jesus can't do that. How are they ever going to learn to live that way unless Jesus followers are willing to lead with that kind of vulnerability and humility, invite others into their story that they might see that they could be a part of that gospel story with them. Yeah, absolutely. I had to be there with them, that community element, that sharing life and doing life together, not just being concurrent with one another, but integrated, right? It's very, uh, it's a very poignant uh, example and purposeful illustration to really be, be in there with them. And it, and it gets messy, right? Cause good relationships yes. are messy relationships and the dynamics fluctuate and you have to allow for things to not be crisp and clean because if they're crisp and clean, it's probably a nice crisp and clean surface. And you're not really in the depths of a good relationship. Um, all right, right. So we have established the context and the purpose of this interfaith venture uh, and those three things that you just mentioned are probably the answer to this question. But, um, you know, one of the really cool things that encouraged me when I got hired here at Trinity was knowing that you were initially hired as the youth pastor. Um, and so you have that experience and now you have, have had or currently have four teenagers uh, in your own family. Uh, and so, Keith, everything that we just talked about, how do you, what do you think are at least some um, initial ways that youth pastors, youth workers can help integrate this mentality into their ministries and why should they? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you for that question. And yeah. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm biased in support of uh, youth ministry Maverick because yes, I have four kids and you've got fingerprints all over their lives. And so <laughs> I believe, I believe wholeheartedly what God has called you to uh, as well. And I would, when I think about, how youth ministry leaders like yourself and others that you're discipling in this vehicle need to be thinking this way. Um, we've oftentimes just elevated right thinking or right behavior as being the starting place and even landing place for effective discipleship of students. They need to have strong convictions so that when they get to college, they're not weighed, you know, um, uh, distracted or led astray uh, because of professors. It's like, well, wait a second, don't you realize they're being distracted and led astray by their folks and peers on social media right now? What are you doing about that? Mm -hmm. uh, and social media is part of the dilemma because we've, we've lost the ability to have engaging conversations with others. And I think you really have to see that that's a necessary characteristic of a, of a healthy disciple that you have to elevate. And you got to program towards that. Right. And that's got to be something that that is taking up time in the youth ministry program, just like the games and the events and the activities and the, you know, the, the Bible trivia or the theological you know, themes as well. And, and that is how do you teach people to have meaningful dialogue to engage in a relationship long enough beyond the headline, right? beyond the litmus test, do you agree with me or disagree with me on something? But to say you matter as a person and I'm going to, and, and as a disciple, I want you to learn how to kind of uh, cultivate the personal story and teach them how to do it. That is an essential characteristic of a growing disciple. And unless ministries get that, we're just going to be sliding to the comfortable place of being content or comfort because we think we're right, right? 
and we just we have to be able to willing to we have to be willing to walk away from that shake free from just the deception of being right or comfortable is everything just not true yeah definitely and um i think youth ministers everywhere you know when we hear about believers engaging with people in relationship and conversation and walking away being more affirmed of various details of their faith we want students to experience that for sure we want them to while they're in while they're teenagers like have that affirmation from having discussions because then when they have those discussions which happen a lot more often than some professor who's trying to nail nail you to the wall on something then they actually know how to have a conversation while holding their convictions while presenting them with grace and yet holding truth right and that's a really key part of youth ministry formation that for sure for multiple years you know i've totally not even thought about and to see that really uh take fruition and really see the value of it over the last few years mainly because of friends for good uh that's been really exciting for me to see that take place especially in the you know people when they think of dallas you know they probably still think of the tv show most of them probably (laughs) don't because they maybe aren't young aren't old enough to watch it or remember it but you know when i moved here i'm not sure what the stats are now but when i moved here just over a decade ago dallas county was only 25 percent white and people don't realize how diverse north texas yeah. is um yeah. and so kind of like you said you know the nations are here god has brought the nations here and so at their schools at their jobs and their clubs sports everything else and their neighbors uh um being able to see people who are very much different than you look different, believe differently, approach life differently. Um, it's a good case study to be able to say, Hey, tomorrow when you engage with these friends and these friends, how are you going to maintain the friendship, but also not just water down and wash away who you are in Christ, right? How do you hold those together? And I think this friends for good model is a very, very cool, um, model and template that I hope other people can really um, latch on to. I mentioned this in the intro, but you guys got a really cool chance to go talk about this at Harvard. Um, You were mentioned in the Dallas Morning News. And so um, it's really cool to see opportunities about, um, you know, people getting to see hopefully evangelicals differently who are reading about it in the paper, you know, and saying, oh, well, okay, maybe there's, you know, they're not all just you know, paint them with a broad brushstroke um, and, and what it means for them to be able to engage well. There's another another theme on this with regard to youth ministry that I think rightly should be spotlighted. And, um, and I was thinking about this just as you were ma- making the summary comments. And that is um, the, the place where a lot of students get grounded in their ability and skill to have meaningful conversations is at their dinner table at home. Right. And but a lot of times what happens at dinner tables at home is either little conversation, if any, or if they're not having meals together, even uh, or it becomes a way to just make, make sure people or kids agree with what their parents expectations are. And I think this is an untapped area for you and other youth leaders to realize that equipping families to have messy but engaging conversations with their students is at the heart of good youth ministry, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Because you're, you're building safety and trust around a dinner table there so that parents would entrust their 
kids to be ambassadors of Christ at other dinner tables with folks that believe very differently, rather than saying, oh, no, we need to protect you from all the folks in the world that are different than you. Yeah, um, I, That, I think, is a huge component. And for us with Friends for Good, as you know, a lot of youth parents were involved with Friends for Good, mm-hmm. which is good, right? Because it, it's giving them a taste of, of what they you know, their children could experience and maybe even experience in their own home where we're not monolithic around our dinner table, right? How in the world would we think we're monolithic within a a larger church, much less evangelicals within a very diverse place, especially like Dallas, as you mentioned, with unbelievable ethnic diversity? Mm -hmm. Man, yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, Well, Kate, this was a great discussion um, before we kind of wrap up, can you tell us about places online or references where people can hop on and learn more about Friends for Good if they're interested? Yeah, great. Um, well, first of all, they can always email you, right? As a member of Trinity <laughs> That's right. Church, yep. a participant church, mm-hmm. you can tell more. And we've got uh, people at each of the participating congregations that are part of the steering team. And they manage a Facebook page called Friends for Good. And that's a great place to just see some of the pictures and stories and comments of folks that have uh, participated in the program have been blessed by it. The, the other thing you can do is we have a website. It, it's not particularly kept up to date because it's a very volunteer organization and it is as by its design much more lay oriented so but it's called friendsforgoodntx.org friendsforgoodntx.org like north texas friendsforgoodntx.org um so that those are a couple of places where you can see some pictures and hear some stories and i think it might even have some clips to the various uh news news clippings and media stories that have been told about the program yeah, very cool. And uh, I will also put uh, in the show notes, um, Keith, you did a chapel um, at Dallas Seminary and talked about it. Um, and that was fun to be in the room uh, for that one. And so I encourage people to go listen to that as well. Um, man, Keith, thanks again for joining me. It's good to see you. I'll be praying for you uh, as you continue to use the gifts that God has given you uh, for pastoral reasons uh for leading and being with your family and enjoying time with them and uh man you you get to actually enjoy a very cold winter which i know being from pennsylvania you just appreciate more than this desert rat does so have fun with that man and uh (laughs) man yeah thanks again for hopping on with me man great to interact with you jeff uh this has been so fun connecting with you thank you that concludes today's episode thanks again to keith for joining me You'll notice in the show notes, there's a link to his chapel message from DTS about Friends for Good. And I've also dropped the links for the website and Facebook page for Friends for Good. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it. And be sure to share this episode with anyone in ministry, especially those who might be looking for a good method or a good model for interfaith dialogue. I think all of us can take elements of this and apply it in our ministry and in our personal lives. I encourage you to check out our website, youthministrymaverick.com. You can find all of our episodes, bios of all of our guests, and other resources. And if you could swing by Apple Podcasts and give us a solid review, I would very much appreciate that as it will help us be seen by more people to benefit them. 
Next Tuesday, we'll have our final guests of the year 2020, Dr. Sandra Glan and Dr. Gary Barnes from Dallas Seminary talking about their new book. Don't miss that. And until then, thanks so much for listening. Adios. Adios.